Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at International Cinema at Brigham Young University. We are in our second week of BYU's winter semester 2021. I'm Doug Weatherford, co-director of International Cinema. I am joined by Dean Duncan, a film professor in the Department of Theater and Media Arts. Dean earned an MA in film criticism from the University of Southern California before heading across the Atlantic to Glasgow University for his doctoral degree. Dean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Doug. It's good to be here. The theme that we have this week at International Cinema is Auteur Cinema, and we will be streaming three films in three languages, but all from the middle of the 20th century, and by directors who have at times been described as auteurs. We have Los Olvidados, which is by Spanish director Luis Buñuel, and that uh, film might be considered his Mexican masterpiece. The film was released in 1950. From 1959, we have The 400 Blows, which is French director Francois Truffaut's, uh, perhaps his most important piece. And I suspect that everyone knows Psycho, the 1960 masterpiece by English director Alfred Hitchcock. Dean, before we uh, talk specifically about these films and these directors, perhaps you could offer a brief explanation of what we mean by auteur cinema, a concept that uh, remains uh, quite controversial to this day. I think it's true as far as it goes, but it often goes way too far. And uh, in addition to wanting to understand, I guess, the lineage or genealogy of the term and, and its manifestations, I think it's probably fair to us, sorry, fair for us to be careful. Auteur cinema, the discussion about auteur cinema preceded uh, auteur cinema in many ways, at least uh, in the U.S., because that's what, where it comes from. Auteur cinema is, broadly speaking, that a film is like a book that's written by a skillful, intelligent, stylish author. That a film, in the right circumstances, and headed by, helmed by the right personality, is as individual, as bearing fingerprints, as artistic as any painting or piece of music by a single practitioner might be. Great. And, uh, you know, obviously some of the, the, the problems with the idea is the fact that so many people do create film. Uh, but we do have three great films and three great directors that perhaps we can flesh out that idea a little bit more with as we uh, move forward. I uh, asked you for some ideas that you might like to cover, and I was really intrigued by a comment that you made, and that was that uh, Truffaut was a punk, right? Yeah. And uh, I want you to perhaps expand on that and say, what do you mean, and what is perhaps some of the arrogance that we sometimes see with the directors that become known as a tourist? Right. Uh, in some ways, the greatest arrogance, and I don't think this is very blameworthy because it's good to be young. And when you're young, you're full of vinegar, and you're also full of fear and vulnerability. And when you're not being fearful or vulnerable, you're confident, and you're not aware of how mean and cruel a place the world is. So you're punky. Truffaut, in addition to being a kind of uh, enfant terrible as a journalist, was also a former JD, which is to say juvenile delinquent, the poor guy. He dabbled in. Should I say poor guy? I think it, I think I will. It has to do with your upbringing. He dabbled in petty crime, and he was saved from petty crime by his cinephilia, uh, which is some of the most excessive cinephilia in film and in world history. That was his religion, which sounds cool. 
I guess, unless you try to live with it, or even more if you have to live with a cinephile. Truffaut wrote a famous article in 1954 at the age of 22. He was precocious to his credit. This is to be appreciated and celebrated. But in this article, a certain tendency of the French cinema, he bashed a whole generation of really creditable film craftsmen. Sometimes uh, in the case of Marcel Carnet, for instance, creditable, viable, super admirable film artists, Truffaut said they weren't men of cinema. He said they wrote scenarios, that it's basically stodgy, stuffy theater on film, which is not really fair. One of the reasons he said it is that sort of, it wasn't fully in his mind, but sort of, and then increasingly as time went forward, he was anticipating and then making a place for himself. He wanted to make different kinds of films, and by putting down the previous generation, he kind of, sort of like a bit of naughty political discourse going on at the time of our recording. This is January of 2021. If you say the term often enough, people will start to believe that the term is correct. That's where Truffaut was uh, a naughty boy. Yet he makes a good point. They started to make films, as people had done before. Jean Renoir gets celebrated. Jacques Tati contemporarily gets celebrated. Clear auteurs, they start to make films that are individual, individualistic and uh, really artistic as well. And bring that around to uh, the 400 Blows and maybe give us uh, some of your ideas of how that particular film might be seen as an auteur film and perhaps even a, a suggestion as why some people might say it is not. Okay, great. Truffaut wrote that first article. He didn't write it for Caillou du Cinema at the time. Later on, he joined and wrote for, well, he didn't join. It's not like he was working for them, but he published in Caillou du Cinema where a lot of those ideas uh, first came to fruition. It was actually Claude Chabrol and Eric Romer, two superb French New Wave filmmakers, who certainly are auteurs themselves, who articulated that more. Anyway, they're starting first to talk about American directors. Hitchcock, who's a British director, but he's working in the American studio system as they're appreciating this film. They're talking about how in this system that subordinates the artist and maybe even makes artistry impossible, certain personalities were still able to prevail and to uh, express themselves in individualistic ways. Orson Welles, obviously, who was uh, squashed by the system, but he was never subordinated to it. Hitchcock. Howard Hawks was much appreciated. Sam Fuller later on. Nicholas Ray. Uh, They're talking about employees that are still managing to be individualistic. Now, the French film industry is huge and longstandingly multiply constituted. It's thoroughly capitalized. It's very sophisticated. You can be a craftsman at the time. Still post-war-ish, lingering for years, the industry is in some disarray, and it makes it possible, sort of like Hollywood in 68, 69, 70, 71, makes it possible for individuals to come and make individualistic films. 400 Blows is absolutely one of those. So so thinking again about uh, the 400 Blows, what is perhaps one thing that a novice uh, film viewer might look for that would indicate that this is an auteur film? Doug, before we recorded this, we were communicating about auteurism and about Truffaut particularly, and I caught myself being uncertain Truffaut, or 400 Blows, is a great example, in some ways the definitive example of the French New Wave. French New Wave films and French New Wave filmmakers did some different things. They had jump cuts. 
they had homages. They had direct address homage, meaning they quoted previous films. Uh, there's a zero de conduite quotation in 400 Blows, which is really delightful. Uh, they were, I don't want to say sloppier, absolutely not, but they were more improvising jazzedly than being perfect in a classical way. Here's my question. Is that Truffaut as an auteur, or is it just a consequence of their material circumstances? You know about, your uh, listeners probably or possibly know about Italian neorealism, where some important filmmakers together at the same time did some world-changing things, but it was because they didn't have as much money and the studio system had broken down and the film studio was not available. So their films are actually manifestations of material realities. Is Truffaut an author, an auteur? He is, partly because he writes and directs his films. That helps. Uh, Partly because he has themes that continue and that he develops. But when you see 400 Blows, I think it's just a really fortuitous manifestation of something that's happening in the film industry generally. And he's not alone. Okay, great. So, Dean, why don't we uh, move on to um, Hitchcock, perhaps the individual that uh, people will know best. Yeah. Uh, I want to say save Luis Buñuel for the end because he's actually my favorite of these three directors. How does uh, Alfred Hitchcock fit into this concept of an auteur, of somebody who puts their very own personal um, stamp on, on not just one film, perhaps an entire lifetime of work? Yeah, Doug, I think he fits beautifully. He's a great example, maybe the poster child of auteurism. I'll say with affection, but also uh, wanting to measure the real situation with you know, a realistic approach that he also embodies the limitations of the theory or the theory run rampant in our minds. Uh, I'm saying parenthetically that film students love the auteur theory partly because they all imagine that they either are going to be auteurs or if they're really precocious, they think they're auteurs already, which is pretty nervy, never having made any films. Hitchcock does two things that an auteur does. And if your listeners want to look this up, they might uh, be thinking about Andrew Saris, the distinguished and super long-standing American film critic, deceased now, who in a number of essays and then famously, world-changingly in his book, The American Cinema, talked about how directors can be really important and individualistic. What they do, what Hitchcock does, is they have a theme, they have an idea that they keep exploring, expressing, revisiting. It may be more than one idea. It may be one idea that evolves and becomes a whole flowering of multiple things. In addition, they have a look. Or since we sometimes have a visual prejudice, they have a look of it or a look and a sound. An auteur is aware of, uh, rejoices in the film medium and does things that are particular. William Faulkner writes William Faulkner sentences that often become William Faulkner paragraphs that sometimes still only have one William Faulkner sentence in them. Charles Dickens is identifiable from a mile or a continent away. Anthony Trollope, who writes simultaneously, or George Eliot, too, um, are not at all Dickensian, but you can tell who they are. This is true of some filmmakers, Renoir, Tati, I'd say Truffaut, certainly Buñuel, I'm going to agree with you when we get to him. I think he's way more important. Uh, But Hitchcock, you can tell a Hitchcock film a mile away. He makes beautiful, beautiful cinematical films. 
Is it possible for an auteur to make bad films? And uh, should we consider them bad? Or does the fact that uh, this particular iconic individual made them make them automatically viewable? That's really interesting. I think that's an important question. One of the appeals of a non-auteur approach to film, we might call it a sociological or a contextual approach to film, where we think of how the expressions reflect the realities or the complexities out of which they emerge. One of the appeals of that is that there really isn't such a thing as a bad film. I guess you and I wouldn't want to get carried away with that. I'm not going to name a name because they meant well and why be mean to people. But over Christmas, we watched two films. They were Christmas films, and they were so bad that they registered on the Richter scale. There's such a thing as a bad film. Having said that, there are so many interesting things going on in the film industry, things relating to film technology, media technology, things relating to aesthetic traditions and the evolution of aesthetic traditions, not only within film, but with theater, with painting, with literature, with music, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And then finally, and most profoundly, sociologically, ideologically, there are things going on and films reflect them. And it's really fascinating. That's why historians uh, like to, and should like to uh, subscribe to film. They should uh, think about it. So that's the opposite of the auteur theory even though you weren't asking me to talk about the opposite. Well, I, I kind of uh, have the same feeling as you do. I, I sometimes feel that uh, students, in talking about film, if there is a problem within a film that they'll gravitate towards that issue and fail to see the beauty that exists elsewhere. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I've always tried to be the type of person that will see the good as well as the bad, not be naive about uh, some of the problems within a film or an artist, but to, to be able to see that that works as well. And that might be a good segue to jump to somebody like Luis Buñuel, who many people will recognize, but they may have only seen, you know, one or two or three of his films, and perhaps those that uh, are most uh, important, and they might see him as a Spanish director, or perhaps even a French director, because he did some of his uh, most important work in France. Um, I'm a Mexicanist, so I am very excited about his work in Mexico, where frequently, Buñuel simply to survive was forced to work in an industry that uh, a lot of times had less money and less financing. And he made uh, what he called his uh, bread and butter films or his his churro films, right? Just slap them together and uh, make some money and be able to go on to your next project. But even his worst films made in Mexico have a certain, I think, depth and beauty to them. And I'm wondering if you might uh, now connect this conversation to Buñuel as a Mexican, as a French, as a as a Spanish director, and maybe some of his great works, but also some of his mediocre ones. Yeah, you were asking about, and this relates to Buñuel, one of the things about the original auteur theory, not only the thing that Truffaut was talking about and that Saris uh, elaborated upon in the U.S., but that a number of French writers were really close and careful with, is that if you're working for somebody... And if your budget is uh, really limited or if your schedule is limited, like with uh, Buñuel's, some of Buñuel's Mexican pictures, what are you going to do? Uh, I like what you say about your conversations with your students. Jean-Luc Godard, sometimes one of the great uh, French auteurs, 91 years this year and still uh, churning them out. 
paradoxically, as a film reviewer, and he was a very interesting film reviewer, he practiced what he called the affirmative review. He always looked for and always found something beautiful in a film. There's almost always something beautiful in a film. And as you talk about Buñuel, and as we think about bad films generally, it can be circumstances external to you or that you can't control, or it can be something really ambitious. Sorry, I'm going back to Hitchcock a bit. I don't know that Rope is a great film, but boy, is it Rope, is Rope interesting. You'll remember that he was trying that 10-minute take thing. So this basically 80-minute film has 10 shots in it, two short ones, but uh, that doesn't really matter. And it's a little bit the cart leading the horse. It's somewhat contrived, but it did allow him to make Under Capricorn, which is very underrated, but it's a tremendous film. It's not a failure. He was trying new stuff. Luis Buñuel starts with these three films uh, in his early young adulthood, uh, Chien Andalou, L'Age d'Or, and uh, Tierra Sin Pan, Land Without Bread. And they're huge provocations. They're some of the naughtiest films ever, especially L'Age d'Or, which was banned even properly, I dare say, for 50 years. Then he works in the States, translating, uh, doing subtitles. Then he finds himself in Mexico, as you say, seeming to uh, just basically be slumming and making, making money. Can we say that, though? Los Olvidados is a masterpiece, and everyone knew it. The Young and the Damned, it's also called. Uh, it seems like it sticks out from his other films. But you look at these other films, uh, The Great Madcap, seemingly minor, but so uh, accomplished, Mexican Bus Ride, uh, Illusion Travels by Streetcar, L certainly, a nutty film, His Wuthering Heights, The Criminal Life of Arquibaldo de la Cruz, Nazarene, Triumphantly, Profoundly, they're all really good. One of the amazing things about Buñuel as an auteur is that he actually eschews, he actually feels scorn for that high style stuff that most of the auteur critics and filmmakers went in for. He would tell Gabriel Figueroa to stop making pretty pictures because he wasn't interested. Buñuel as an auteur, as a philosopher, as a Dadaist, as a surrealist, as an anti-clerical, semi-communist, but he's too much of, I guess, a surrealist to be a communist. Anyway, listen to me getting all carried away and throwing the terms up. Buñuel is partly a auteur because he contains multitudes. And I don't mean that his name is Legion. That's not the kind of multitude. His uh, autobiography is so affirmative and dear. He was a naughty filmmaker, which is to say that he called people in their uh, injustices. And um, his auteur, auteur thumbprint is that he is an encyclopedia, that he is a whole brewery, that he is a whole society, that... Uh, to echo Chaucer, using a phrase that John Dryden would re- uh, later pull out of the Canterbury Tales, he contains God's plenty, even if, ironically, he is an aggressive and vocal atheist. Yeah, and I, I think that um, uh, Buñuel is a lot of fun. And for those of you who have yet to discover his Mexican filmography, I think that uh, Dean offers a really good list there. Uh, there are a few other films. Um, but I would argue that uh, even though... I suggested that some of his perhaps weaker films were made in Mexico. The reality as well is that many of his best films were made in Mexico. And you mentioned some of those. I would uh, add uh, Simon del del Desierto, Simon of the Desert, 
for example, to that list. And if you haven't seen Los Olvidados yet, you should realize that it's, uh, it, it is his uh, third film made in Mexico in 1950. In 1950 in Mexico, the artistic scene is still dominated in many ways by people like Diego Rivera, uh, you know, the muralist who are trying to represent Mexican present in the past in perhaps uh, picture postcard ways, you know, very positive. If you've seen the movie Coco, it's very inspired by the artistic scene in Mexico of this time period. And Buñuel, along with a handful of others, turns that vision on its head and says, no, Mexico is not the beautiful facade that is, for example, the uh, National Palace and the Cathedral in the Socolo of the center of Mexico City. I'm going to show you the back streets and show you yep. what Mexico really is like. And the film was was harshly reviewed when it first played in Mexico, as you might imagine. You know, the people were offended at, at somebody, especially an outsider, showing that reality. But the film became really important in Mexico and today is considered to be one of Mexico's most important not its most important film. It's not a happy picture, but it's certainly an important commentary on Mexican reality of the time. And it's a Spanish filmmaker who leaves that kind of imprint on Mexico. Sometimes, um, so, sometimes the outsider is helpful, isn't he? Uh, we need a counselor. We need a clergyman. We need a foreign artist to look at our community or our culture to reveal things that we either haven't recognized or that we're not using on purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that's a great list of films. Dean, I, if you have uh, other things that you'd like to say about these particular uh, films, feel free to go ahead. But I was also kind of hoping that for individuals who want to explore these directors and perhaps this concept of the auteur uh, cinema, if perhaps you might offer us some of your recommendations for other Hitchcock films, especially among his lesser films, other Truffaut films uh, that uh, that somebody might watch as well beyond these three that will be streaming at the International Cinema. Very good. We already talked about Los Olvidados. I feel like I haven't celebrated it enough. We'd better just leave it and ask people to see it. I discovered once it's not a date film, or if you want to break up, it is a date film. I discovered once that it is, I'm not sure if this is on purpose, but it's a terrible, dire parody of Oliver Twist. Oliver Twist, uh, 1837-38, also I'm thinking of David Lean's amazing late 40s film version, nearly contemporary, just before uh, Buñuel's, and then Roman Polanski makes a jaw-dropper of an early 2000s version. Anyway, Oliver Twist is full of poverty and sorrow and anger. But it pulls this little innocent out of the morass, out of the cesspool, out of the inferno and saves him. And uh, I think we're giving away the ending. Los Olvidados is a tragedy. And uh, the children don't survive in two ways. Either they're killed or they're corrupted. It's such a dire view. Another Mexican film at the other end, after he'd run away from Spain, (laughs) having planted the nuclear bomb of Viridiana, Buñuel's Exterminating Angel is a humdinger. I had a a class of introduction to film students so mad at me for uh, showing that film that it was one of the highlights of my life. I think you'll maybe enjoy that. Let's see. Uh, His last three, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, Phantom of Liberty, Obscure Object of Desire. The last two are adult films for sure, Um, but adult films by a guy who's masterly till the end. Discreet Charm 
is a great example of a guy who, uh, in the words of Jean-Luc Godard, talking about Charlie Chaplin and Jerry Lewis, these are the films of a free man, a remarkable filmmaker over decades, over continents. uh, He will reward your attention. Now, Alfred Hitchcock was extremely prolific, extremely productive. He had a really efficient method, and he was very hardworking. When I was a kid, I saw the Hollywood films and thought, those are pretty cool. And then when I went to school, I saw the British films, and I thought, wow, those are cool too. There was an idea that the British films were lesser. Though the resources are lesser, the films aren't necessarily. And then I assumed that he was just uh, an apprentice when he made silent films in uh, the UK in the 20s. But then I saw the silent films at a silent film festival and realized that from the very get-go, Hitchcock was a master. He was a cinematical master. Again, Doug, as you and I discussed, at some point you start to think, boy, enough guilt, Hitchcock. Uh, Some of his themes are at least, if not very hopeful, they're not very hopeful. They may not even be very grown up. But, boy, guys, you should see The Lodger, Blackmail, The 39 Steps. Sabotage, which is an astounding adaptation of Joseph Conrad's novel, Secret Agent. The year before he made a film called Secret Agent was an adaptation, which is an adaptation of Somerset Mom, so it's very confusing. Lady Vanishes, terrific English films. He goes to Hollywood. Rebecca, he's interfered with by David Selznick, but it's one of the great Hollywood films ever. Shadow of a Doubt, notorious, possibly his greatest film. Stage fright, no one likes. I like it. So I'm going to say that. Strangers on a Train, an adaptation of uh, Patricia Highsmith, I think by Raymond Chandler. Triumphant. Rear Window is the Hitchcock film. When you hear about the Hitchcock cliche that it's suspenseful and skillful and also funny, he was a tremendous comic director. It's Rear Window they're talking about. Vertigo is a perverse to the point of perverted piece of, it's a nightmare. It's a work of art. It's really dire and dangerous. One of our kids, one of our female kids was furious after she watched it. You watch it and you'll see why. North by Northwest, the most popular, it's getting to be sort of repeated uh, or by rote at that point. Psycho, which you guys are watching this week, is a lean, mean, nasty piece of work. It's on purpose. It's really artificial. They know it. He's not trying to be realistic. Uh, very similar. He's just trying to put us through it. He's a suspense filmmaker and he likes to be cruel to us. And at the end, there's still a few to follow, but uh, I would say that Birds is worth your while. Crazy things, some strange sequence shots, um, but it's pretty pretty powerful. You could watch them all though and be glad. Doug, maybe you want to say something because I'm just blabbing so much. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, certainly going back to Buñuel, uh, you mentioned this film, but the one that I would suggest that people see is uh, Subida al Cielo, a Mexican bus ride, which is kind of a funny name in, in English. And it is uh, one of the cheesiest films that you will see, especially when you when you see the special effects or lack thereof in this film. But it's such a pleasure to watch. And what's interesting is that there is a film that comes out in the United States just a few years later called Bus Stop that has Marilyn Monroe in it. And I think that if you watch those two films back to back, I think it'll pleasure. Uh, The Mexican film has an actress by the name of Lilia Prado, who was often considered the Mexican Marilyn Monroe of the time. And so you can kind of see these two female characters in similar roles in those two uh, similarly themed uh, films about uh, taking a bus ride that doesn't go anywhere. 
So that would be my recommendation from Buñuel. Okay, finally, Truffaut is comparatively unprolific. He dies at 52, and he, he gets to it fairly quickly. He makes his first film at the age of 27, but there's some in-betweens. 400 Blows is one of the precious films in all of film history for all sorts of reasons. It's the first of his Antoine Duanel films, uh, the Antoine Duanel character played by Jean-Pierre Léo. Uh, there's a short film after and then uh, three features where we uh, see him grow up or not grow up, as the case may be. 400 Blows is full of life and joy, and ultimately it ends kind of direly or even tragically. It's practically a perfect film. The uh, Duanel character gets more callow, as does the Truffaut character, it seems to me. Anyway, Shoot the Piano Player is a tremendous, it's an adult film, it's a tremendous adaptation of an American uh, noir novel, David Goodis's novel. Jules and Jim, Jules et Jim, is a masterpiece, and it's so untidy. It's going to blow your mind, partly because we have this Gallic phenomenon. It's a promiscuous film from a promiscuous culture. And it's really important for us not to just be dismissive or a whited wall or self-righteous or anything like that. But uh, the sexual mores are striking and troubling. You'll see that more well. And let's see, they reap the whirlwind at the end, to its credit. The same goes for the soft skin a little later on. There's a crazy English version of Fahrenheit 451. His English wasn't good. Uh, And it's to his credit. It's fascinating. Ride War Black, an uh, adaptation of Cornell uh, Woolrich's noir novel, is terrific. He, uh, Truffaut, famously, famously co-wrote a book with Hitchcock, which is to say they had a long series of interviews that are very erudite, both sides. And uh, Truffaut was a Hitchcock devotee. And uh, Ride War Black and Mississippi Mermaid are uh, creditable attempts or even successful attempts at um, suspense. The Wild Child is a beautiful film, one of the prettiest, loveliest, sweetest, and most presentable to even your grandparents of Truffaut's film. Can I point out that Day for Night answers your previous question, Doug? You were asking about poor films. Day for Night is uh, Truffaut's famous and much celebrated film about the making of a film. And the film that's being made in this film is pretty poor. And uh, they say it doesn't matter. And this is something for all of my students and your students and all of us to think about. It's hard to make a film. And it's possible to be positive, even in the face of a film that's not fully successful. Day for Night is very good, but it also pays uh, homage to and gives respect to anyone who tries it, including any of you or any of us. This is me. Um, The story of Adele H is really interesting. I think I'm not a big fan of Last Metro. Confidentially, yours is kind of good. I think by the end, Truffaut hasn't too much more to say. Unlike Buñuel, complicatedly, unlike Hitchcock, he's a guy who said this much and then continued to work, which isn't a crime. We all want to continue to work and uh, work is honorable, but uh, he doesn't, he's not quite in the same stratosphere as those other two. Hitchcock's important. At some point, you want to let him go because there's more to life than that. Uh, Buñuel, I recommend religion as far as it goes, but uh, and it goes pretty far. But Buñuel is the special one, the possibly the least known of our three, and the one that will most reward your listeners' uh, further investigation. Great, that's a, <laughs> that's an amazing list of films, and I think that our viewers who are interested in exploring these three 
great directors more have uh, a, a lot to feast upon. And uh, thank you for supporting Buñuel so much because he is one of my personal favorites. And thanks for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today on From the Booth. Tune into our podcast each week for insightful discussion of the film streaming at BYU's International Cinema. Current BYU students, faculty, and staff signing up with their BYU Net ID can stream Los Olvidados, Psycho, and 400 Blows this week on BYU's Hum Media platform or other platforms as indicated. For instructions, visit ic.byu.edu. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at Brigham Young University and is supported by the College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here, as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our producer, Dewey Walter, our sound engineer, Marina Hegstrom Pratt, as well as the staff at the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. We would also like to acknowledge the musical talents of Professor Greg Stallings and his son Johnny, who are responsible for our intro and outro music. Until next week, keep streaming.